You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. When I talk to people who aren't Christians, uh, the conversation about faith usually ends up being about like what Christians can do and can't do. Because if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's what you think the Bible is, like a list of God's rules. And sure enough, if you open it up and start reading, there are a lot of commands and prohibitions and expectations. It's hard to see through all of that. Even faithful Christians have a hard time understanding how the law of God relates to the grace of God. I mean, if we're saved not by works of the law, but by grace, then why are all these commands in the New Testament? That's what we're going to talk about today, which is to say we're going to talk about something that is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. We have been studying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this summer, and the law of God is central to the story. You remember, this was the work of Ezra, to rebuild the people of God under the law of God. And so as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, I want to take this theme and trace it from Nehemiah to Jesus, and then look at how it applies to us as the new covenant people of God. Now, when we talk about the law, we're not just talking about rules. We're talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. There are lots of rules and commands in there, but they're not random. They're actually part of a narrative that is revealing God and forming a people who worship God and accomplish His purposes on the earth. In other words, uh, the law tells us what God is like, tells us how to live according to His ways, and it tells us what it accomplishes when we obey it. However, the history of God's people is that God gives them laws, and they get excited about it. They say, we're going to do this, and then they don't do it. And that happens over and over and over from Adam all the way through. That's the main reason that they were exiled into Babylon, because they wouldn't keep God's laws. And so now, as the people are returning from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, the law is front and center. If they were going to be the people of God, then they would have to obey the law of God. So in Nehemiah 10, they make a covenant to observe all the commandments and do everything God says. Um, at this point, Nehemiah leaves town. Right, The story sort of ends on this high note of commitment to God. Nehemiah leaves town, and then he comes back to see how things are going. And in Nehemiah 13, we get a report of what he discovers. It's like a report card. And so as we've looked at, the first item on the report card is their commitment to support the work and worship of the temple. Fail. The second item, which we looked at last week, is that they're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. Fail. And today we come to the third item. They make this commitment, and they say, we will not marry the people of the land. Now, we talked about this in Ezra 9 and 10. It's, the issue is not about race or ethnicity. Uh, it's about holiness. The purpose of the law was to reveal a holy God and to instruct people on how to walk in his holy way. And if they did this, then they would show the world what God is like. They would be a light to the nations. 
That's what they want. So in chapter 10, they say, we will, we will not marry the people of the land. But then in chapter 13, Nehemiah's uh, rebuke is that you have acted treacherously against God by marrying foreign women. Fail. As we've been looking at these commitments and failures, it can be pretty discouraging because we see ourselves in these commitments and failures. And that affects us in at least two ways. For some of us, it makes us feel like, okay, we got to try harder. Like we think of grace as kind of a second chance to do better this time. For some of us, we get really discouraged and despair. We think, why try it all? I mean, thank God for His grace because it covers all my failure and, you know, I can't even, can't even do it anyway. But listen, neither of those is a biblical picture of God's grace. Grace transforms us from duty and despair to delight in God's law. Uh, David says, show me the path of your commandments because I delight to do them. Paul says, I delight in the law in my inner being. And so how do we get there? How do we get from duty and despair to delight? Well, the key to this transformation is the good news that Jesus fulfills the law for us and in us. What does that mean, for us and in us? Well, we're going to pull together a number of concepts and verses today to answer those questions. Uh, But let's start in Nehemiah. To understand uh, the importance of the law for Israel and the nature of their failure, we need to talk about the biblical concept of holiness. The word literally means cut off or separate from everything else. And so to be holy means to be set apart. God is holy because there is literally nothing or no one else like him. And Israel was called a holy nation, not because of anything they had done, but because God chose them among all the peoples of the earth to be his treasured possession. He set them apart for himself. And so you have a holy God who sets apart a holy people. And the first command he gives them is that they should worship him and have no other gods before him. Right? That gets to the heart of this commitment in Nehemiah 10, not to marry the people of the land. It's about holiness. It's about maintaining their identity as God's people and not being influenced by the worship of false gods that are happening around them. But they failed. And we see the consequences of their failure in Nehemiah 13. Look at verse 23. Nehemiah says, In those days I saw the Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Here's what's going on. They've married foreign women. Uh, They've been influenced by these other gods. They've drifted from Yahweh, and they're not passing on the faith to their children. You had to be able to speak Hebrew to participate in Jewish religious life. And so if the kids couldn't speak the language, they wouldn't be able to pass on the faith. This is a huge and serious threat to the very existence of God's people. Nehemiah tries to convey the seriousness of this by appealing to what they all know is the prime example of King Solomon. In the next verse he says, Did not Solomon 
king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Solomon was like the best and the greatest. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. His heart was drawn away from his God. Ezra says that this is unfaithfulness, faithlessness. It's a strong word that means something like spiritual adultery against God. And you see Nehemiah uses the same word here in verse 27. He says, you have acted treacherously. It's the same word, unfaithfully, against our God. So the first thing about holiness is that it means to be set apart unto God. But by marrying foreign women, they have given themselves to other gods. The second aspect of holiness is that there's a moral righteousness involved. The law instructs us on how to live according to God's will. There are a lot of things that we could say about that, but both Paul and Jesus say that all of the commands of the law can be summed up in this one command, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. The purpose of the law was to form a people who loved God and loved one another. And it was a self-sacrificial love. Jesus says, no man has a greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his brother, for his friend. Their failure was a failure to love. Certainly, it was a failure to love God, but it was also a failure to love one another. The reason I say that is because the prophet Malachi, who was one of the preachers during this time, He says, not only were they marrying the people of the land, they were leaving behind their exile wives to do so, their Israelite wives. Uh, In the passage, uh, Malachi says, you have been faithless, there's that word, to the wife of your youth, even though she's your wife by covenant. And God says, the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, covers his garment with violence. It was a failure of love. Now, this idea of um, moral righteousness carries with it the concept of guilt. When Ezra confesses this sin, he says, Our guilt has piled up to the heavens. No one can stand before you, O God, because of this. Finally, holiness includes an Ritual purity, and this is the one that we're the least familiar with. It's not really a matter of sin and guilt. It's a matter of being clean or unclean. The deal is is that God is holy, and so to come into his presence is a dangerous thing because it would consume you. So when God's on Mount Sinai and he's giving the law to Moses, he says, the people cannot come close to the mountain because if they do, the glory of my holiness will consume them. And the same thing's true in the temple. God's presence is in the temple. You can't just walk in any way you want to. There are laws to become ritually pure so that you can approach God in the temple. These laws about becoming ritually pure really have to do with separating yourself from anything that's considered unclean. For example, the Ammonites and the Moabites are not allowed to enter the temple of God. 
There's a long history about that, but it's written in the law. And we see in Nehemiah that when the people read of that, they take action and they separate themselves from them. But then when Nehemiah comes back, look what's happened. In verse 23 again, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. The very people that they had separated themselves from are now married to them. So the law is about holiness, being set apart, morally righteous, ritually pure. And as we have seen, their failure is comprehensive in every category. That's the history of Israel's relationship to the law. There's excitement and commitment and comprehensive failure. And when the prophets look back on that story, they lament. They lament our inability to do what God says. But they also look forward to a day when all of that will change. For example, Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That was the real problem with the covenant of law. It was external, and it couldn't change the human condition. But now the prophets are saying, someone's going to come a faithful Israelite who can represent us before God and mediate a better covenant that changes us from the inside out. The failure of Israel to keep the law points us to Jesus. He's the faithful Israelite that the prophets look forward to. Let's talk about Jesus and the law for a minute. Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfills the law because the law points to him. He, he is the embodiment of God's holiness. So he is set apart unto God. Hebrews 7 says that he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Um, when Isaiah has his vision of this faithful Israelite, this chosen one who will come, this is what he says. Or God says in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, listen to what happens when Jesus is baptized. Matthew 3. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Do you see how he's fulfilling Isaiah's vision? Jesus is the chosen one, the beloved son, set apart to do God's will. He's morally righteous. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He loved God and he loved people. I love this statement. In John 14, Jesus said, I do... As the Father has commanded me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. 
John 13, he says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Jesus demonstrated his love for God and for others on the cross. For God, when he said, your will be done, not mine. And for us, when he said, it is finished. And he gave up his life for us. All right. We've been going through some big categories pretty quickly. And so let's just pause for a minute and think about what this means for us. Like When I say that Jesus died or Jesus obeyed the law or fulfilled the law for us, I mean, he did it in our place. Um, the New Testament talks about this in a lot of ways. Peter says Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The concept is that just as Adam represented humanity in his sinful disobedience, in the same way, Jesus represents humanity in his perfect obedience. Romans 5 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Like, Jesus didn't come and live a righteous life just to show off, just to be like, look at me, I'm God. (laughs) Everything he did, his entire life of obedience and his death were on behalf of his people. This isn't just theological abstraction. This is about the radical transformation that Jesus brings. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that whoever's in Christ is a new creation, The old has gone, it's passed away, and the new has come. This affects how we see ourselves. And so, back to the questions at the beginning. If you're the kind of person who feels like uh, grace is a second chance to do better, you know, and perhaps, you know, God won't even accept you until you do better, the good news for high achievers is that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. We no longer have to establish a righteousness of our own, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. This is why Peter can take all of the language that was used for Israel and apply it to the church, to us. He says, we are a holy nation, a chosen people, a people for God's own possession, a royal priesthood. He takes all these words and he says, that's us. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see your brothers and sisters around you that way? If you struggle to see yourself or others in those words that Peter says, that's a clue that you're still operating on some system of righteousness apart from Christ. What about the other side of the coin? What about those who feel like, helpless sinners. And like, I just don't see how I could actually change stuff in my life, not in any significant degree. Well, the good news for helpless sinners is that Christ fulfilled the law in us, not just for us, but in us. Romans 8, 4 says, Jesus lived and died so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is talking about our life now, our new life in the Spirit. 
This is what all the commands in the New Testament are about. God wants us to live holy lives, devoted to Him, morally righteous, set apart, not being influenced by the world, but rather being salt and light in the world. And He's given us the resources to do that. We can't do it on our own. But the Holy Spirit lives in us and is producing in us a life of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. This is the direction of our lives. We don't do it perfectly, but it's what's happening because the grace of God has changed us at our core. And the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now animating the very life of God in our mortal bodies. If you look at your life or you look at other people's lives and you're just like, man, there's no hope for change. That's a clue that you're still thinking about the Christian faith in terms of the flesh, not realizing that Jesus has fulfilled the law in us through his spirit and that he's doing that now. Okay, we've said that Jesus was set apart and he was morally righteous. There's still one more thing. Uh, the last piece is that he's ritually pure. Remember, the idea of ritual Purity was so that people could approach God in the temple. Well, Jesus is the true and better temple. He's the presence of God dwelling among us. And when you realize that, you can see how radical this transformation is that he came to bring us. Remember, the people couldn't go into the temple because if they did, the holiness of God would consume them. But with Jesus, John says, yeah, we beheld his glory. We looked at him. We were up close. And when you look at his life, people are always approaching him. All kinds of people. Romans and Samaritans, tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and lepers, everyone. And all of this was offensive to the religious leaders because in their mind, if a clean person touches an unclean person, then he becomes unclean. And so they were always really nervous about these people who Jesus was surrounded by. Uh, one time, a, uh, a woman who was unclean because of an issue of excessive bleeding uh, tried to get close to Jesus. There were crowds pressing in on him, and she, she couldn't get to him, but she managed to just reach out and, and just grab the hem of his garment, just the fringe of his clothes. And when, that, when she did, when she touched him, she was healed immediately. And Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? You know, Peter's like, hey, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? There's crowds everywhere. Just let's go. And Jesus says, no, someone touched me because I perceive that power went out through me. See, normally when an unclean person touches a clean person, both people become unclean. When something pure comes into contact with an impurity, both things are made impure. But not so with Jesus. With Jesus, power goes out from him and heals her and makes her clean. Do you see it? One day a leper came up. Now lepers were like the symbol of uncleanness. This leper came and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this time Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and he says, I will 
Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. When Jesus touches something impure, it becomes pure. And that's what he does for us. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus fulfills the law, not only by obeying the law, but fulfilling the purpose of the law. To be a light to the nations, to be the healer of the nations, to show people what God is like. Now this is really cool. Uh, all these aspects of holiness come together in Isaiah 6, which we heard in our call to worship today. Let me just work through this really quickly with you so you can see it. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All right, so Isaiah's in the temple. In the Holy of Holies, and the seraphim are standing above the throne, and they're saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And Isaiah is freaked out, floored. He, he doesn't know how he got there, and he knows he doesn't belong there. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then Isaiah says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar. Now, this is a symbol of God's holiness. It is a white-hot, pure, burning coal. If it touches you, it's going to burn you. But the angel touched it to Isaiah's mouth, and he says, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The holiness of God didn't destroy Isaiah. It transformed him. And then it sent him out as God's messenger into the world. He says, I, I then heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah goes from scared, feeling like, and knowing like he does not belong, to becoming God's chosen messenger sent out into the world. That's the transformation that God's grace brings about in our lives. Jesus is like the coal from the altar. He was offered up as a sacrifice to atone for our sin, to make us clean, to take our guilt away. And he's the Holy One who calls to himself now a new people, a holy people, a new covenant people who delight in the law of the Lord and love to walk and his commandments. And he sends us out. He says, we are now light of the world. When you think about Christianity, don't think about the rules and the laws primarily. Think about what they point to, the one who fulfills the law in us and for us. 
don't fall into the trap of trying to like earn favor with God and get his acceptance through your performance. Rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And don't fall into the trap of just trying to, you know, get through life until Jesus comes back and fixes it all. No. Take hold of the purpose that we have in Christ and the power that we have in his spirit and get to work. That's what Christ has set us free for. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us. Let's thank him for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.